Julie knew she could spend the rest of her life in prison if she were caught crossing the border with four pounds of methamphetamine duct taped around her waist. But life had become so overwhelming, so painful, that she no longer cared if she lived or died. So she crossed over the border. Hello and welcome to the God's Story podcast. I'm Brent Siddle and my very special guest this time on the show is Julie Seals, the author of this new Bridge Logos book called All My Hope, A Prisoner No More. In the book, Julie unveils her extraordinary journey of overcoming a 17-year addiction to crystal meth and being transformed by the power of God, and is a truly incredible story. Julie is now an ordained minister and prison evangelist, a popular keynote speaker for women's conferences, and also ministers in church services and youth ministry events. She co-founded her Hope Recovery Ministry in 2022, and Julie joins me now. Julie, hi. Hi, thank you so much for having me, Brent. This is a big honor. I'm really excited. The honor is ours, I can I can assure you. Now, let's go back to that moment where we left you about to cross the border. What actually happened when you crossed over that border with your four pounds of methamphetamine that day? That's a really good question. So the day before, I'm going to back up to the day before, um, after 17 years of alcohol and meth addiction, I had come to the end of myself. And I had gotten sick and tired of being sick and tired. And what happened is the Holy Spirit pulled the blinders off my eyes. And I saw that instead of a victim of life and all the circumstances and things that had happened to me, that I was actually in reality a sinner in need of a savior. And the day before I crossed that border with those four pounds of meth, I had fallen to my knees in the house I was renting in Mexico with a meth lab. And I had asked God to become the center of my life. And I said, I'm not, I can't meet you halfway. I'm asking you, God, to do whatever it takes to rescue me. So the next day, I didn't feel like God heard me because nothing seemed different. But in reality, when we cry out to God, we are inviting him to come into our story and make us part of his story, like you and I were just talking about. And so when the mafia came and asked me if I would take drugs across the border for money, I told them that I would do it because I didn't think God heard me. And as I was getting ready to walk across the border, I felt the presence of God, like this bubble come over me. And I ended up walking up to a U.S. Marshal with a gun and I told her what I was doing and I turned myself in. I personally wouldn't like to have to walk up to a U.S. Marshal for any particular reason, but I they look terrifying to me. But anyway, let's let's go back right to the beginning because I really, in the half hour we've got, I'd love to go through as much of your story as 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 we can manage, perhaps all the highlights. Certainly because it is a true story of God's grace. It it really is. When you were born, you write that your parents took you home to die. Now, why was that? I was born with a birth defect called spina bifida. So. When I was born, there was a big hole in the bottom of my back and my spinal cord was coming out through the skin and there was a tumor wrapped around it. And the doctor said I wasn't going to live. Yes. And you write about knowing the presence of God, though, from a very early age. I think four you, you, you yes. mentioned. How did you know the presence of God? How did he make himself known to you even at that very early age? Well, my mom and dad had gotten me a Bible and they would occasionally take me to Sunday school. And I had a Bible and I remember reading in that Bible 
and just knowing that it was true. And it was this simple childlike understanding that there was a God and that he could see me and that he was real. Yes. And you had some very strange experiences in your yeah. house, which you yeah. uh, which you detail as a child and a young person. Can you tell us about those? Yes. And you're actually the first person who's interviewed me that's asked about that. But there was there was demonic activity in my parents' home when I was growing up. Um, they were when I was a baby, they played my mom and dad told me that they played with a Ouija board and they would they had friends come over and they were levitating a table and calling on spirits. Well, my mom said that she when the table levitated, she said that she didn't think it was real and she started mocking the spirits. And she said that the table, and it was this big, heavy, huge oak table, and it flew out from under everyone's hands and it pinned her against the wall. And then when her and my dad were playing with the Ouija board, they, she thought my dad was moving the little triangle thing. And she, and she asked it what happened to, uh, when people play with a Ouija board and it spelled D-E-A-T. And before it could finish spelling, they got scared and they threw it away. Well, because of what they were doing, they opened up doors for evil to come in. And I remember being a little girl and lights would turn on and off by themselves in my house. Um, doors would open and close. And as I grew older, um, things got a lot scarier. There were crashes. We saw shadows and shapes, um, a lot of scary stuff. Yes. Now, how did the amphetamine or the, the methamphetamine usage start, Julie? Yeah, it started when I was 19 years old. Um, I worked at a tanning salon and one of the clients came in and told me that I was overweight and it was Southern California and there was you know, in the 80s, all, all the women wanted to look like a model and uh, be a size triple zero. And so I just wanted to lose 20 pounds. And I went to a biker bar in Huntington Beach and bought a little bag of meth, not, you know, understanding really what it was going to do to my life. And one line of that meth took me on a journey straight into hell on earth. I ended up in a 17-year addiction to meth and pills and alcohol. And I got caught up in that cycle because the meth is a stimulant and it makes you really high. And then I needed the alcohol to come down. And it was just this never ending cycle of addiction. Yes, I think amphetamines were legal in the in certainly in many parts of the of the world up until fairly recently, weren't they? I think they still are under prescription, but anyway, I think in the about fifty, sixty years ago, doctors prescribed them for weight loss and uh, they used to give them to soldiers and people on active duty and truck drivers who had to stay awake during the night and so on. Yeah. yeah. Now, how did the methamphetamine usage affect you physically? Physically, um, well, it made me not hungry, so I lost that weight that I told you I wanted to lose. But it also, um, it affects your mind. And it. I would stay up for days on end because I couldn't go to sleep. And it turns you, methamphetamine alters your sense, it gives you a sense of false euphoria. And it honestly turned me into someone who I never dreamed I would become. It, all of your normal like um, inhibitions and morals, they just go crashing down. And uh, it's, it's really, 
it's really an awful, awful drug. It, it changes your personality completely. And yet God communicated to you uh, during this time, didn't he, in a vision, and you write about that in the book. H- how did God communicate to you in that, in that vision? Do you mean the vision where the ceiling opened up and I saw myself in prison? Okay. Yes. So um, I was living with my parents, and I was in the upstairs middle uh, office, and I was doing a line of meth, and I had a big tumbler of vodka, and I was pretty, pretty strung out at this time. And I remember walking down the hallway, and um, I, when I was in that room, though, first, I remember looking at that line of meth, and the ceiling of that bedroom opened up. It went away, and it opened up. And I looked up, and I saw myself in a vision, like I could really see it. And I was in prison. I was on what society calls the wrong side of the razor wire. But in this vision, I was smiling and I was sober and my skin was clear and I was happy. And I also had a knowing that if I did not change and give my life to God and go all in, that that was where I was going to end up was prison. And I also had a knowing in that vision that that was where I was going to go and that nobody in my family would be alive to see me change. Yes. How did you end up in Mexico? So I ended up in Mexico. I was going, I went there a couple times. The first time I was in Mexico, I crossed the border during a custody battle. I took my little boy there uh, trying to hide from the police. That was a bad idea because that's how I ended up losing him. But then after I lost custody of my son, when he was four, my dad died unexpectedly of lung cancer. And in a short period of time, I had lost my leg to amputation, custody of my son. My dad died of lung cancer. And I ended up running away with a plan to end my life in Mexico. And instead of ending my life, because I figured I'd botch that up because I botched everything else up I ever tried to do. I just stayed numb with pills and alcohol and meth for two years. And I was running away from life. Yeah, you mentioned a leg amputation. I, I think it was, yeah. a, your left, was it your left leg amputated below the knee, I think. How, how, why did that have to happen? Why did it have to happen? Or why um, did it happen? Yeah, it happened because I had neuropathy as a result of spina bifida, and I lost the feeling in both my feet when I was 12 years old. I ended up getting pressure ulcers in the bottom of my left foot, and they got infected. And for about a 10-year period, I had all these infections and IV antibiotics and surgeries trying to save my left foot. Finally, gangrene set in because the doctors couldn't cure it. But during this time, in the background, I'm addicted to alcohol and drugs, and that was canceling out the IV antibiotics, so they weren't working. So, yeah. Yeah. At what point did you get involved with the drug cartels? Because you write about this, don't you? It's fairly terrifying. It is. And I was in Mexico and there's that scripture, Brent, that says bad company corrupts good character. And I was not a good character. But when I was in Mexico, I started, I was a magnet for all the wrong people. So I met people who were cooking meth there, who were very involved with the mafia down in Mexico. And at first I was afraid to be friends with these people because I thought, you know, the federales were always raiding their house with machine guns and 
But then it wasn't long. They became my suppliers of the meth I, I needed. And so it wasn't long before I ended up with a meth lab in my bathroom. And the Mexican Drug Task Force was jumping over the fence raiding my house. Mm. And you, you were nearly shot at one point, I think, if I remember rightly, weren't you? Yes, it was in it was on a balcony of a terrace of a house I was renting in Playa de Tijuana. It was a New Year's Eve. And I was standing up there pondering the mess that I had made of my life. And a bullet, a gunshot went off and almost instantly a bullet went by my face. I could feel the heat of the bullet. And I kind of, I dropped to the ground and army crawled into the house. Um, I kept moving further south into Mexico every time an attempt was made on my life. And how many attempts were made? Uh, well, there was that one. There was a man who came to my house to murder me. And then there was a drive-by shooting. So at least three, maybe four, um, because I was being followed up the street of Rosarito Beach one night. And so possibly four. Yeah, this is, is bad, isn't it? It's awful. It how is did, bad. How, yeah. How did God, because I mean, your story recounts how the Lord never, never gave up. He was always there through all these crises, wasn't he? How did God continue to reach out to you? I mean, you mentioned reading the Bible at, during this period at some point too. I had a Bible in Mexico, and I remember clearly um, be, still as an adult being drawn to God, and I would open up that Bible and... I would read the scriptures that say the righteous will inherit the kingdom of heaven and the wicked are going to perish. And I would shut the Bible because something deep in me knew that I was the wicked. And I remember in Mexico, I was high and strung out and I would be driving by a church that said Iglesia Pentecostal and my heart would beat faster. And I knew there was something in there for me. And I would think I'm going to go on Sunday, but on Sunday I was never sober. So I never went, but God was pursuing me. Mm. And even a voice came into my mind, my head, one, one day and said, Julie, you're going to go to hell for the way you're living. And it wasn't a mean voice. It was like, matter of fact, this is, this is where you're going. And as clear as a bell, I spoke to the voice. It was so plain. And I said, well, at least I'm going to have fun while I'm going there. But then I thought, well, I'm not having fun. (laughs) At what point, yeah. At what point did you give your life to Christ? Yeah, it was right after I was in prison. I thought I had, I thought life was over. And the first week I was there, a group of women prison volunteers came into the prison in San Diego. And one of them came over and sat down on my bed. She convinced me that no matter what I had done wrong, what evil things I had done, that Jesus Christ came to earth, hung on a cross, paid the price and died for my sin. And that I, if I would invite him into my heart, repent of my sin and ask him to be my Lord and my savior, that he would make me a new person and give me a new life, no matter what side of the razor wire it was on. So I, I had fell on my knees that night when all the other inmates were off eating dinner and I invited Jesus to come into my heart. And really from that moment, your story changes quite dramatically and you have amazing experiences. Now, I love the judge at your trial. I thought that the judge at your trial was a really wise character. How did the judge give you a second chance? And what what did they say to you? Well, the marshals, the U.S. marshals told me I had the toughest judge in San Diego and that I may as well give up. I was never getting out. I was arraigned at 17 years to life. And by the time I got in front of the judge for my final sentencing day, I'd been in prison for six months. 
My pet, my uh, federal defender told me that she was going to try to get it down first to 10 years and maybe even six years. But she goes, Julie, I'm not sure we're going to do it. Well, when I went in there, I was a different woman than the woman that stood before him right after my arrest. And he just looked at me and my eyes were shining and my hair was combed and my prison uniform was ironed. And he said, Julie, I see something different in you. And he mm -hmm. said, I'm going to give you a chance. And he said, I want you to keep in touch with me. I want you to write to me. And he said, I'm going to sentence you to 30 months in federal prison. Well, you get good time if you're good. So I ended up only having to do 22 months in federal prison. And you kept in touch with him, didn't you? I did. I wrote to him. I was supposed to get three years of probation. And I told my federal defender, I said, I want to go back into the courtroom and tell him thank you because I was going to college after I got out. I was getting straight A's. And she said, Julie, you can't just walk into a federal courtroom and talk to a judge. You have to have a legal motion to go in and get in front of him because there's protection. And she said, we could ask if he'll end your probation early. And I said, OK, we can do that. But I didn't care about my probation ending early because I was just living with all this joy and but I was like, OK, let's do it just because I want to tell him thank you. So I went in after only 18 months of probation and it was like you could hear a pin drop because there was all these people in the courtroom and he looked at me and he said, Julie, I've been waiting to talk to you. And I had this moment of being able to tell him that Jesus changed my entire life, that I was going to college, getting straight A's. And he said, judges need to hear these stories. He said, I'm always going to remember you. Yes, he was an amazing character. How did rehab help you in prison? And, and what sort of rehab options are open to people in prison anyway? Yeah, so I was in federal prison and I was in what's called RDAP, Residential Drug and Alcohol Program. And it it was cognitive behavioral therapy. Basically, I learned in a nine-month residential unit in that prison, I learned how to change my stinking thinking, as Joyce Meyer would say. Um, I learned about where my thought processes would go wrong and how to reconstruct them using not just positive thoughts, but I use the word of God to reframe my thinking. Romans 12 and 2 says, you know, to renew our mind with the word of God. And that's what I did. Yeah, you were working while you were in prison, weren't you? As well as as well as studying, am I right? Yes, I had a job at a place called Unicor, which is an in-prison workplace, and my job was making patents on the computer. I would process patents or inventions. People would type up these patents when they invented something, and I was the one that processed. And this leads to another fabulous story in your book, which is about yes. a, a miraculous computer experience. I have many computer experiences, but alas, none of them miraculous. But you did, and it's quite extraordinary. So what happened on that day that you were working on the computer while you were in prison? I love, I love that you love all my favorite stories. So my mom <laughs> died right before I got out of prison, and I was going to live with her and go to college. And that was really, really crushing. But... Um, what happened and she was she had believed in me and the change that god made in me and it was just crushing her death was crushing and god went to such great extreme to reach me the officers in the prison told me that i didn't have to go to work at unicorn but i said i wanted to because i didn't want to be alone in my room so 
I went to work and I felt like I was going to have a nervous breakdown. I was crying and I went up to an officer. Usually patents are this thick. They're about an inch to two inches thick, all typed up. Well, she looked at me and she pulled us a patent from the bottom, a little skinny folder. And she gave it to me and I went and sat down and she was like, you don't look okay. And I'm like, I'm fine. I sat down at this computer and I did not, I thought, this is weird. This is really skinny. It's only, you know, 20 pages. Well, when I opened up the screen on my computer and I looked at it and I looked at the paper, it wasn't a patent. It was scriptures from the word of God. It was everything from the word of Psalms. It says that God is our comforter and he comforts us in our time of sorrow. And I looked at that with tears going down my face. And all of a sudden, my tears of grief and mourning turned into tears of joy. And I was like, I jumped up and I screamed and called out to the other inmates. And I'm like, God's talking to me on my computer. And they all surrounded my computer. And one of the ladies goes, do not fix the patent. Leave all the mistakes there so that you get it back the next day. Well, I didn't fix anything. And if you didn't fix the mistakes, you got it back the next day. Well, the next day I couldn't wait because I wanted to read. I read that whole 20 pages of God's, you know, comfort in the book of Psalms. Well, I got back the next day and the officer looked at me and I said, and I was like, I'm, you know, where's my patent? And she said, I don't know what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. And I said, from yesterday, my patent. And she said, I don't have anything for you. She had no memory there was no evidence of that patent. That was literally God doing whatever he could do to get to one little inmate on what society calls the wrong side of the razor wire to comfort me in the moment when I needed it the most and let me know that he saw me and that he loved me. He does things like that. He's, he's absolutely remarkable. Absolutely yeah. remarkable. Um, now, what did you study? Because you went to college after your time in, in prison. What did you What did you end up studying? I did. So my um, associate degree is in just general education, and then my bachelor's degree is in public health and health education. Mm. Yeah, wonderful. Absolutely wonderful. Now um, we better uh, start to wind wind the story up because the and then the, the miracles just keep coming. Really, I mean, how did you get? Tell us about the the absolutely beautiful story of how you got back in touch with your son Tyler. Yeah, so I was looking. I set up a Facebook page just so that I could find him one day, or that he could find me. And I did see him. He was in high school. I found him on Facebook, but the Holy Spirit told me, do not reach out to him. So I was obedient as hard as that was. And then I saw that he graduated from high school, joined the army. And finally, I felt the Lord tell me, it's okay, go ahead and reach out. So I stopped to figure out where in the army his boot camp was. And I sent him a big box full of licorice and candy and snacks and a sailor's bible and a card that said tyler i'm so sorry for failing you as a mom and i've given my life to jesus and i pray that one day you'll find it in your heart to forgive me and i gave him my cell phone number and my information on facebook well um his dad actually ended up reaching out to me on my cell phone and said that tyler didn't want anything to do with me and um it was an opportunity too much time to go into, but basically God had me apologize to his dad 
for the pain that I caused him by taking his son and running running away. And um, three months later, my son, my husband, my now husband, drove me to the Jacksonville International Airport. And I walked through the airport and my son at the age of 20 got off the plane and he was saved. He was in love with Jesus and he had forgiven his mom. And he came running into my arms, arms wide open. And we've now, I'm sorry, we've now been reunited for 10 years. Mm -hmm. And I got to walk him down the aisle at his wedding. Oh, wonderful. Absolutely wonderful. Yeah, and now my name is Grandma. <laughs> oh, that's lovely. Oh, that's just wonderful. And you yeah. became invo- How did you get get involved with prison ministry? Well, um, my husband and I got married. We met in the church. We got married eighteen years ago, and we have been actually doing prison ministry the entire time of our marriage. He looked at me and he said, "Julie, there's got to be more to living for God than just going to church." This was right after we got married. And I said, there is, I made God a promise that if he let me out of prison, I'd spend the rest of my life going back in. Mm. So I drug my husband with me. We've been doing prison ministry for 18 years. I've kept my promise to God. And I go into prisons um, around Florida. I do ministry in a women's prison. And that's the whole reason I wrote my book is because I cannot visit in person every prison in the nation. But God wanted me to write my story and send it into every state prison, federal prison, county jail in the nation and then around the world. And something you don't know is that this is a really cool thing. My friend is a pastor and she just went to Uganda on a missions trip. She took 20 copies of my book and through a series of miracles, got them into a Uganda prison three weeks ago. Wow. There we go. Okay. Well, uh, what do you say to someone who's maybe listening to this podcast, who's at the absolute end of their rope with life as you were all those years ago? Um, what, what, what is your advice to them? What do you say to them? My, what I would say is that there's a God who created you, who loves you, who has a plan for every bit of mess you've made, every tragedy that you've endured. And if you will just cry out to him from your heart, he will respond. He will answer you. He will come into your heart and, and he will change everything, starting with the inside of you. Um, he, he is, he's got a good plan. He's got a good plan and he's there, but we have to fully surrender. So that's what I would say is when we're at the end of the rope, we can't just pull a God card and say, yeah, yeah, I'll try this for a week. We have to surrender everything, give it all up, (laughs) let God do what he does. And your life will work out and turn out better than anything you could ever dream. And the second thing I would say is reach out to someone for help. If you're stuck in addiction, um, reach out to um, your church, to a Teen Challenge Addiction Recovery Program. Reach out to me on my website. I'll email you back, but reach out for help. It's an act of courage and bravery, not a sign of weakness. And where can people find you on social media? They can find me on uh, my Facebook page is Julie Seals Ministries. On Instagram, I'm Julie underscore Seals. And I have a website, julieseals.com. Wonderful. And the new book from Bridge Logos Publishers is called All My Hope, A Prisoner No More. Julie Seals, 
What an amazing story. What an amazing story of God's grace. Isn't that fabulous? It's just been a joy to speak to you and to hear about how God's worked in your life. And thanks very much also to our creative team at Liquid Edge who sponsor this podcast and who take care of things behind the scenes. Julie, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much. It has been a joy. I've loved speaking with you. We really hope you've enjoyed this episode of the God Story Podcast. If you want to help us make more great episodes like this one, you can head over to our Patreon page and become a God Story Podcast supporter. You'll receive our undying gratitude, plus a few bonus goodies for your ongoing support. Just visit patreon.com slash godstorypodcast. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash godstorypodcast. As always, you can get in touch with us via our website, godstorypodcast.com.